Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. I want to talk about a celebration in heaven. I don't know about you, but um, when you think about it, when you read on it and study it, every culture celebrates weddings. And uh, almost a universal custom is that the bride wears some kind of special clothes. She wants to look lovely as the bride on her wedding day, whether she's wearing a uh, Chinese red silk dress or an American uh, veil with a white satin gown with a long flowing train. The bride wants to be beautiful on her wedding day. And the bride will always make herself ready to be presented to the groom. And that's always one of my favorite moments of officiating a wedding, Herman, is when, uh, you know, you give everybody that signal, all rise, and the music cranks up, and everybody turns around, and here comes the bride. Uh, I love seeing that, and then looking at the the groom's face, because he's like, you know? And so he's like, wow. Uh, Here, you're going to see in Revelation 19, Uh, a portrait of a heavenly wedding of the lamb bridegroom, Christ, with his uh, church, the bride. And you'll see the statement when we get to it that uh, she has, uh, the bride has made herself ready. And uh, then we're told that the, uh, the wedding gown is the righteous acts of the saints. And um, rarely do we consider when you think about it, that the kind of lives we live for the Lord now will have an impact on the way the bride of Christ will appear on a wedding day. Food for thought there. Uh, as we think about that, it made me uh, reminded me of a great hymn that we all love, Are You Washed in the Blood of the Lamb? Now you know that tune, and don't worry, I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> but, but think about the, the words to this hymn, Have You Been to Jesus for the Cleansing Pyre? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Uh, Are you fully trusting in His grace this hour? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you walking daily by the Savior's side? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Do you rest each moment in the crucified? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? One thing we can all look forward to is on that day, those that are part of the bride of Christ, they've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And because of that, We will be pure and spotless, and it'll be a glorious thing. But it's all because we've been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And that's why there's going to be a celebration in heaven. That's why it's possible for there to be a celebration in heaven. Now, before we read Revelation 19, the first 10 verses we're going to cover, I want to go back to chapter 18, to verse 20. Uh, As God was pronouncing judgment on the... uh, great city of Babylon, notice in Revelation 18, verse 20, he says, Rejoice over her, heaven, and you saints, apostles, and prophets, because God has pronounced on her the judgment she passed on you. And then it lists in the last four verses there of chapter 18, the finality of the fall of Babylon the Great. And then in Revelation 19, verse 1, the celebration that he commanded them to have, rejoice over over her heaven, 
the celebration in heaven begins. And so that's what we're going to look at tonight is the celebration in heaven. Um, there in um, Revelation 19, uh, as Warren Wearsby said, when Babylon fell on earth, the command was given in heaven, rejoice over her. And what we read in this section is heaven's response to God's command. Uh, Herschel Hobbes says this section we're going to cover tonight is actually the climax of chapter 18. As the prostitute is destroyed, there's rejoicing in heaven, and one can hear this rejoicing mingled with cries of agony and doom on part of those who serve the prostitute and her worldly system. So basically in this celebration, we find the Holy Spirit contrasting um, two destinies of two women. One is the harlot or the prostitute, which is great Babylon in chapter 18. And then in chapter 19, the bride of Christ. Okay, so let's dive in, shall we? In Revelation 19, we learn that, that, that heaven celebrates for three reasons. And uh, let's look at uh, verse 1 through 4. John says, After this, I heard something like the loud voice of a, ma of a vast multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah! Her smoke ascends forever and ever. And then the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen! Hallelujah! So right here we learn that the first reason why uh, heaven celebrates is because God has judged his enemies, okay? God has judged his enemies. Um, the, the heavenly company here rejoices when wickedness is destroyed and righteousness is established, and that's exactly what is happening here. Notice in verse 2, his judgments are true and righteous, because he's judged this notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth, and he's avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. And so God has just, uh, he's judged wickedness, and he has established righteousness by avenging his servants' blood. It reminds me, when you think about it, think about how much history has passed from the beginning of time to the end of time as we know it, Judgment Day, before you know we go into, I guess, a sense of eternity. But when you look here at Revelation 19, it reminds me of what the world would probably say about all this. Because the world's going to say, there's no Judgment Day. We don't have anything to worry about. Everything's going on like it always has. And that reminds me of Psalm 79, verse 10. In Psalm 79, verse 10, the psalmist wrote, Why should the nations ask, Where is their God? Before our eyes, let vengeance for the shed blood of your servants be known among the nations. I believe that was from David, but think about how many saints in, in centuries uh, uh, go, gone by in history ha have dealt with the world saying, Where's your God? You know, where's your God when this happens or that happens? Where's your God? And, and the cry of his people is, Lord, before our eyes, let your vengeance 
for the shed blood of your servants become known among the nations. And God's judgment day is the answer to that, among the nations, okay? Very public event. Um, one commentator says that uh, the word hallelujah, notice you see this uh, a couple of times, three times, I guess, here. In verse 1, he heard the, like the loud voice of a, of a vast multitude in heaven saying, hallelujah. And then a second time in verse 3, hallelujah. And then um, from, from the throne in verse 4, or around the throne, amen, hallelujah. And as I was uh, studying this, Bob, I didn't realize that this is the only chapter in the New Testament with the word hallelujah. You know, we get that from the Psalms, right? You know, to praise the Lord, hallelujah. But as far as the, the terminology hallelujah, which means praise the Lord, the actual term hallelujah in the New Testament is only here in Revelation 19. I thought that was, that was interesting. But it appears all over the place in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, and it means praise the Lord. Uh, when it talks here about praising God because His judgments are true and righteous, uh, he's judged the prostitute in verse 2, and he's avenged the blood of his servants. Now, you know, we live in a world that cries out for justice. Matter of fact, justice is a very popular topic to talk about today, right? And everybody's got a different concept of what justice is and obviously what injustice is. But God's word to you and I, when we find ourselves on the raw end of a bad deal and we feel like we've been unjustly uh, you know, treated and we want justice, God's Word tells us in Romans 12, 19, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it's written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. Now, what that's saying to the believer in Christ is, we're not the judge and jury. We're not the dispenser of justice. If we'll take our case and go before the Lord, He will handle it in His own time, in His own way, even if that, even if that means we have to wait till judgment day, so be it, He will still deal with it. And so God cautions us not to play His part so many times we want to play God, right? And it says, don't avenge yourselves. Leave room for God's wrath, okay? God's wrath will be revealed and will judge sin at the right time, at the right place, in the right way. And we have to say, God, I'm going to let you handle that. And uh, that's how we live our lives. Uh, one great uh, concern of Revelation, if you think about everything we've covered so far, if you just kind of back up from the book and look at the big picture for a moment, one great concern of Revelation is to show that God ultimately vindicates His servants, particularly martyrs, those that die for the faith. Now we know that Stephen in, Acts, in the book of Acts was the first Christian martyr, okay, uh, once the church was born, uh, but he's certainly not the last. And uh, on earth, uh, the Christians will be rejected and uh, many times killed by this prostitute city, uh, Babylon the Great, as if they were wicked people. Uh, we know that in Revelation 6.10, there under the altar, 
the, the souls that have lost their lives for Christ are crying out, how long, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Well, the answer to that prayer from Revelation 16 is, is now seen in Revelation 18 um, with the death of the great city, the harlot, the prostitute, Babylon the Great. God now avenges the wrongful death of His saints, and in Revelation 6.10 and 19, chapter 2, are the only two verses in the book that use the Greek word, verb for the word avenge. Okay, avenge. Again, in Revelation 6, uh, you know, how long until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then here in Revelation 19, verse 2, they're praising God because he's judged the prostitute and has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. So there you go. In both instances, it's martyrs for whom divine justice has been served. Well, again, the first reason that there's a celebration in heaven is because God judges his enemies. The second reason that heaven celebrates is God begins to establish his reign. Look, if you will, in verse 5 and 6. A voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all His servants, and the ones who fear Him, both small and great. And then John says, I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder. Now, I love all these uh, descriptives, don't you? Notice he's trying to describe what he heard, and he gives you three likes. Like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of loud thunder, and here's what it said, hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. There you go. I love that. At this point, God begins to establish his reign. You know, beginning with this verse and going through Chapter 20, halfway through the next chapter, John's attention will be drawn to the events that are connected with this great victory of Christ when he comes again. There are three striking but complementary portraits of his return. Um, the first one you're going to see here in uh, verses 6 through 10 of chapter 19. Jesus is the bridegroom who is coming for his bride. And then... In the second half of chapter 19 that we'll look at next week, Jesus returns as the conquering king on the white horse who's going to defeat the enemy by his very word, okay? The sword from his mouth. He says it, and it's over. And then the third thing you'll see in the next chapter, Revelation 20, is that Jesus returns as the righteous judge of all humanity, and the books are open, and the judgment takes place. And so you see these different pictures of who is coming back. He's coming back for his bride. Uh, he's the conquering king that defeats the enemy. And he's the righteous judge of all humanity. All of that rolled up into one, you might say. Now, the language here, the phrases that he uses in verse 5 and 6 are very striking. It reminds you of something earlier in the book. If you'll turn back a few chapters to Revelation 11, in Revelation 11, uh, particularly verse 15, is the seventh trumpet, okay? 
Remember, you got all these sevens in Revelation. You've got the seven churches. You've got the seven seals on the scroll that were open. You've got the seven trumpets. You've got the seven bowls. Well, let's go back to the seventh trumpet. And in Revelation 11, verse 15, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated before God on their thrones fell down, uh, face down, and worshiped God, saying, we give, thanks, we give you thanks, Lord God the Almighty. Now, going back to Revelation 19, you will see that they praise Him in verse 6, Hallelujah, because our Lord God the Almighty reigns. Okay, so go back to Revelation 11. I'll keep reading there. So it says, We give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was. And it doesn't say, and who was to come, because he's arrived. Okay, it's the seventh trumpet. So we give you thanks, Lord God, the Almighty, who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, but your wrath has come. The time has come for the dead to be judged and to give the reward to your servants, the prophets, to the saints, to those who fear your name, both small and great. Now, isn't that in Revelation 19 as well? Uh, there, uh, in verse 5 of chapter 19, a voice from the throne, praise our God, all His servants, the ones who fear Him, both small and great. And then you go back, and it says the last part there of uh, Revelation eleven eighteen, and the time has come to destroy those who destroy the earth. And so the way Revelation is um, written, I think so many times we've been taught and thought that Revelation is just linear, that that chapter 10 happens after 9 and 11 happens after you know 10 and so on and so forth. But when you read the book, I believe that uh, it's kind of like a, a pendulum that swings. He, he starts here, he swings out, gives you a little bit of a glimpse of the future. Then he comes back and keeps telling the story. Then he swings forward, gives you another glimpse of the future. And as you go through the book, when it swings to the future, you see a little bit more, a little bit more, and then you get to the end and you see, you see all that he's going to show you, okay? And so we have a glimpse here of the end in Revelation 11 at the seventh trumpet. I believe that the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet. Uh, it's when he shows up because of the language. Uh, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, and you don't say who is to come because he's shown up. It's the seventh trumpet. It's the last trumpet. He has begun to reign. He has begun to judge. He has begun to reward his servants. The time has come right there at the seventh trumpet in Revelation 11. It's announced there, and now it's described in Revelation 19. Now in Revelation 19, we're further along in the storyline. We're further along in the book. And now when he comes back to it, he expands on it. He shows you more of what he you know, announced back at the seventh trumpet. And so here you see this voice from the throne, praise our God, all his servants, the ones who fear him, both small and great, 
he hears this powerful voice like a multitude, like a sound of water, like the rumbling of thunder. Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Okay, And so the second reason why heaven is celebrating is not only God judges his enemies, but God begins to establish his reign. Now, please understand, God's in control right now. He's on the throne. But when he begins to establish his reign, the whole world will know, okay? There will be no doubt about it whatsoever. Uh, As uh, Dennis Johnson says, God has always been the almighty creator who cannot be thwarted, even by evil forces hostile to his authority. That truth, however, has not always been evident throughout history. As the nations have raged against the creator, and his Messiah, which is mentioned in Psalm 2. But at history's end, this mighty voice declares that all will see that God's rule without rival has arrived. So, you know, I remember reading through the Bible one time, and um, I was in the Old Testament, and um, Solomon becomes king, and David dies, and now Solomon is king. And all these people come up to uh, Solomon and they're really trying to get in good with the king. And he remembers everything that his dad, David, told him to do. Don't trust that one. You better keep your eye on this one. And you do the right thing. Da, 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 da. And almost immediately from the beginning of Solomon's reign, he makes wise decisions. I mean, people that are testing the limits, he gives them no slack. And then boom, done. And you begin to read everything in the early days of Solomon's kingdom, and it says he began to establish his kingdom, his throne. And I'm like, yeah, I like that. That is a picture, okay, of the ultimate king who one day is going to come, and he's going to establish his throne, and he will rule, and he will reign forever. Hallelujah. Word is handled when I need to hear him, right? Okay, the Messiah, handled the Messiah. Uh, great song there, Hallelujah based on Revelation 19, the hallelujah, the hallelujah, and he shall reign forever and ever. Well, the third reason why heaven celebrates, we've got God has judged his enemies, we've got God begins to establish his reign. The third reason heaven celebrates is the time for the marriage of the Lamb has come. Oh, this is the best part, y'all. There in verse 7, it says, Let us be glad. Rejoice and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And then He said to me, now watch this, then He said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. And at that point, look what happens. John, in my opinion, loses it. John says, and then I fell at his feet to worship him, the messenger. Okay. Now, he knows better than that. You and I know better than that. But I'm going to give uh, John a little grace here. I'm not endorsing that we worship angels or other people. No, not at all. Far from it. What I'm trying to say is, I think John is so overwhelmed at everything he's seen, at everything he's heard, that he just loses it. 
And so he begins to worship this angel that has showed him and told him this, and he gets immediately corrected. He says, don't do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. As uh, one commentator says, with the destruction of the harlot comes the presentation of the bride. And John's vision of the bride will not occur until Revelation 21. Uh, again, as I mentioned earlier, uh, here we're getting a peak. Okay, The, uh, the uh, great city of Babylon was announced a few chapters before it was expanded upon in, in uh, chapter 18. And now here is the bride and the wedding mentioned in chapter 19, and then it's expanded on in Revelation 21. I won't go there, I'm tempted, but you just got to wait till we get there, okay? But it expands on that then. Uh, just as the harlot was mentioned in chapter 14, verse 8, revealed in chapter 17, so the bride is announced before her entrance. The heavenly celebration is not looking backward, uh, exulting over fallen enemies. It is looking forward anticipating the consummation between God's people and their Lord, the bridegroom, and that is Jesus Christ. Now, as I was studying this, not being a Jew and not being a Hebrew, had to work at, at understanding this a little bit. Uh, we have our marriage customs, and they have theirs. And when you read about the Jewish marriage, marriage customs, you'll know that there's the betrothal. Uh, what we would call the engagement. And then there is an interval between that and the actual wedding. And then there's the wedding with the wedding feast. Now, here's what's unique about this. And if you think about this, you, you know this or you've heard this. The betrothal, the, uh, the engagement period, it's actually more binding than an engagement that we, we would have today. Uh, just to give you an example, remember Joseph and Mary, okay? The earthly parents of our Lord. Joseph, when he heard that Mary was pregnant, what was he going to do? He was going to quietly divorce her, even though they were engaged. See, that's how serious engagement was in Hebrew culture. Once you were engaged, in order to undo that, you had to get a divorce. That's how binding engagement was. And then after the engagement, the, the betrothal, uh, is the interval time uh, between the engagement and the wedding. And during this period, the groom pays a dowry to the father of the bride. And then when the wedding happens, afterwards you have a feast, a celebration, and it can last seven days or even longer. So those of you, uh, father of brides that have had to pay for weddings, imagine a reception that lasted for seven days. That would really hurt the pocketbook, wouldn't it? Woo, man. <laughs> All right. Well, I love what William Hendrickson said. He says, um, he says, look at Jesus, okay? He says, the Son of God assumed our flesh and blood, and the betrothal, the engagement, took place. The price, the dowry, was paid on Calvary. And now, after an interval, which in the eyes of God is but a little while, the bridegroom returns, and it has come the wedding of the Lamb. The church on earth yearns for this moment, so does the church in heaven, and then we shall all be with him forevermore, and there will be a holy, blessed, everlasting fellowship, the fullest realization of all the promises of the gospel. 
And I'm thinking, yeah, amen. He came, he paid the dowry with his own blood. He's coming back and we will be with him forever. Um, you know, it says here that uh, the bride has prepared herself, that she was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. And then it tells us that this fine linen represents something, the righteous acts of the saints. Now, you and I are righteous in God's sight, but it's not because of anything we've done. You know that. I know that. I certainly know that. Uh, I am made righteous through Christ, right? Because of what He did for me. And Isaiah 61 tells us clearly. Isaiah 61 verse 10, the prophet said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness as a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. He's the one that's given us the clothing, right? He's the one that has enabled us to be righteous. It's by His own blood that we're saved, and now we are righteous in His sight. Praise God for that. No wonder He says, write these words in verse 9, Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And then He assures John by saying these words of God, are true. And that's when he lost it. You ever cried at a wedding? Well, he lost it talking about the wedding. The the ultimate wedding, okay, between God and his bride. And so John is overwhelmed. He's corrected by the angel, don't worship me, worship God. And then he's told these wonderful words that I personally cherish. These words in my opinion have shaped my view of Bible prophecy more than anything, and that is right here in verse 10, worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Uh, years ago when, you know, let me say it this way. Years ago when I got into ministry, I was kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, indifferent and apathetic. I don't know and I don't care about Bible prophecy. And so I, I just didn't deal with it for quite a few years. And then finally, uh, one day as I began to pray about what God wanted me to start teaching and speaking on, he took me to the second coming. And I'm like, well, I don't understand it all. And that led to one thing to another. And for about a year, 15 months or so, I began to just really immerse myself in Bible prophecy. Okay. And I know there's all kinds of views and there's all kinds of positions out there. But one core conviction that I have to this day from that time of study is what this verse says, that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Here's my punchline. Whenever someone uses the Word of God and they begin to tell you about prophecy, regardless of what they believe and what their views are, they need to take you back to Jesus. Okay? If they don't take you back to Jesus, something's amiss somewhere. Okay? Because Jesus is the spirit of prophecy, okay? Uh, I, I believe in this so much that I could quote you a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, I'll refer to some stuff and I'll give you one verse, but I'm reminded of Luke 24, you know, after the resurrection, Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus and he runs into two disciples and they don't know who he is. Remember that story? They, they just don't know who he is. And he kind of 
comes along. Hey, what are you talking about? Oh, you haven't heard? And they begin to tell him everything that's ironically happened to him. They don't know it's him. And then the Bible goes on to say that he began to go to the, uh, the law and the prophets and the Psalms and show them what it said about the Christ. And then they stopped for a while and he took bread and he broke bread in front of them. And when he broke the bread, the Bible says their eyes were open and then he disappeared. Now that got their attention, didn't it? And as they are headed back to tell everybody what just happened, now they realize, oh my goodness, that's him. He's alive. Wow. They said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened our minds to the Scripture? In other words, Jesus took their Old Testament Bible, which was composed of three parts, the Law, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Every bit of it, he demonstrated how all of that points to him. So all of the Old Testament prophecies ultimately point to Christ. Now the verse I want to give you is in 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and listen to what he said. He said, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy, and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in Him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in Him. Therefore, through Him we also say amen to the glory of God. What did Paul just say there? Well, I already established how Jesus, when He was talking to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, He pointed to every portion of the Old Testament and showed how it pointed to Him. Now, here is Paul in the New Testament, and he is saying that all of every one of God's promises is yes in Christ. Here's the way I take that to mean. All of God's promises, and I'll even say this, all of God's prophecies ultimately point to, are fulfilled in, by, and through Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecies. That's why I never really got into prophecy before I understood that. Before I understood that, I'd turn on and I'd listen to somebody or I'd read something about Bible prophecy and they always had a Bible in one hand and they had the newspaper in the other and they were really sensationalized. Did you hear what happened in Israel the other day? Do you think that's that eagle over here in chapter so-and-so? And I mean, you're just like, and what about the mark of beast? Do you think it's here yet? And on and on and on it goes. And it's sensational and it gets your mind going and your imagination runs wild. But the bottom line I want to say is this. In your view of prophecy, if it doesn't take you back to the cross and Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, ascended to the Father, coming back someday, going to rule and reign forever, you missed it. Amen? And so that's what I want to say. So it's pretty powerful when you think about it. So um, this is the blessing. Those who are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. These words of God are true. Now Jesus uh, 
wanted his church to see clearly that this world this worldly system promises pleasure and prosperity but it wants our very soul and that's why Jesus said what will you exchange for your life what will a man uh, you know lose for his own soul and um, here I'm reminded of what Jesus taught in Matthew 22 he taught a parable about a king and about a wedding it's in Matthew 22 once Jesus spoke to them in parables, and here's what he said, Matthew 22. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who are invited, See, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and fatted calf have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out his troops, kill, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. And then he told his servants, the banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city, and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So those servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. And when the king came in to see the guest, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. And then the king told the attendants, Tie him up, hand and foot, and throw them into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. God's invitation goes out. Everyone's invited, but a lot of people are all into their selves and them stuff. And I've, I've got stuff to do. I, sorry, I can't make it. I'm not going to come. And he says they weren't worthy. I want you to make sure everybody knows, invite them to my banquet. But even when you respond to the invitation, there's a condition. In order to be chosen, you've got to have on the right clothes, which means you've got to come to the cross. You've got to be washed in the blood of the Lamb. Okay? Without being washed in the blood of the Lamb, you might be a religious person, but you'll never experience the wedding. You'll never get in. You have to come to the foot of a bloodstained cross. No wonder Isaiah the prophet that I mentioned a while ago in Isaiah 61.10 said, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God, for He has clothed me with the garments of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. Are you wearing those clothes today? Will you respond to His invitation? You know, the invitation to this wedding is going out even as we speak and anytime you get an invitation you got two choices you can receive it and answer it and go to it or you can reject it and today i want to remind you that the reason why there's a party in heaven is because every time a sinner repents the angels in heaven rejoice amen and i want to tell you that right now you and i are invited to this wedding supper 
But we got to have on the right clothes. We got to have on the garments of salvation. We got to have that robe of righteousness. And how do you get it? You come to the foot of a bloodstained cross. You give your life to Jesus Christ. You turn from your life of sin. You put your trust in Him and follow Him. That's the only way. And it's my prayer today that you and I will do just that. And if we do, look at what we've got to celebrate someday. When He comes again, He will judge the world in righteousness. He will begin to rule and reign forever. And the wedding supper begins. Oh, won't that be fun? Can't wait. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Lord, we thank you for this word from the word. Lord, I pray that you'll give us that joy that comes only from you, that we can rejoice just like heaven is commanded to rejoice because when you come, when you arrive, when you return, we know that you will judge. We know that you will rule and reign. And Lord, we will be with you forever. And Father, we give you praise and honor and glory. Hallelujah for that. You are Lord God Almighty. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.